It's another blessed opportunity, isn't it, that we, you and I have been given. We just worded that thought a moment ago in prayer, even as we thanked God for these two opportunities today and the blessedness that's ours to be able to lift up our heartfelt gratitude and thankfulness unto Him. It truly is a wonderful thing that we can come together as the Pippin congregation and always welcome any visitors that may come our way. As you can already tell on the slide tonight, we're going to develop, at least give some appreciation to, some more questions as well as answers that, that you as uh, the congregation here have posed. Now this is our fourth installment this year so far in doing this. I try to basically on average do about one of them a month, and so given this is May, I guess in a way we're about one, one of them behind. But that being said, I always, of course, base it primarily upon the questions that are received. And it's always relating to the questions you ask. I'm thankful that you've asked them, and I hope that some of our study tonight will be helpful. This opening slide basically reminds us of the conviction as to why something like this is valuable and useful. At the bottom, isn't it true that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness? Did you note that word instruction? And the reason, of course, or one of the blessedness is the fact we may thus be thoroughly equipped, perfected in all the ways that God would find pleasing. So tonight we have a few of these questions, and let's turn our attention to them one by one. Now, I don't know who, who asked the questions, and that's certainly perhaps the better thing to do. And so our first question, I'd like to read verbatim the question that was asked. Someone sent this question, and here is the wording of it. Suppose a person were baptized, and prior to baptism, this person struggled with a private sin. For a brief time after baptism, this person was able to control the temptation with the sin, but soon began to fall back into that sin again. After careful examination of the heart and frequent prayer, this person has now fully repented of this sin and is able to overcome the temptation. The question is this, does this person need to be rebaptized now that they have fully repented of the sin? Or, under 1 John 1 verse 7, is this person okay and in a saved condition? Now, I tried to word again what this individual asked, and so let's piece together a few of the specifics in as much as it was shared in the wording of that question. And you'll notice with me at the top, the individual who wrote this question highlighted, in fact, even significantly so, that this individual, whoever it was, struggled with some particular matter. They came to Christ. Now, that, of course, doesn't magically remove the temptations we face. And you'll notice in the wording of it, it says, this person was able to control the temptation after the baptism for a while, but then slipped back into this behavior. A few things you and I might ought to carefully notice. It affords us an opportunity to highlight, doesn't it, the significance of what the Bible calls repentance. This individual understood the fact that one simply cannot take a sinful lifestyle into the waters of baptism and expect that all the matters concerning that's forgiven and be able to continue living in that same thing. If it was a sin before you were baptized, it'll be a sin afterward. Baptism doesn't change the nature of something sinful into something unsinful or not sinful. 
we must highlight then the, uh, the idea of this repentance. This individual endeavored to stop this behavior, to not give in to that temptation, whatever it was. And we must give this person a great deal of credit for that appreciation. Isn't it true? The Bible highlights the necessity of repentance. John the Baptist, in fact, in John, or rather in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, he said, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Even John insisted on the reality and the necessity of repentance. One chapter later, Jesus highlighted this in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, the Lord said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, those individuals of that time were commanded to repent in light of the fact the kingdom was soon to come. The kingdom has now come, my friends. The church is the kingdom of God. That hasn't changed in one element at all, though. <clears throat> the reality and the necessity of repentance. And so, one by one, we notice verses like these. Nay, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Those famous words of Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. Wasn't it true on the day of Pentecost that Peter rather emphatically said, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. All of those things I say because the world frequently, and this even includes the religious world, has a very serious misunderstanding concerning Again, what the Bible terms as repentance. That has a great bearing on our answer to this question. For instance, note these statements. It seems clear from the wording, at least if I'm understanding what was written, this individual did repent. When that person obeyed the gospel, that person strove to stop whatever this activity was and to overwhelm whatever this temptation was. That seems to suggest an evidence of this person's repentance. And with that evidence, we might now note this. After that person became a Christian, so his or her sins were washed clean in baptism. They were forgiven of whatever it was that had been the sins in that person's life. They were whole and sanctified and washed. Now it quickly notes, the time did come, the person lapsed back into this behavior that wasn't good that was in fact sinful. May we quickly note, it's not a sin for a Christian to be tempted. In fact, based on the New Testament, we can guarantee that's going to happen. The devil wants to tempt you and I, and in James chapter 1, verses 2 to 5, he does this in such a way, often there will be many or manifold temptations. So it's not wrong for a Christian to be tempted. All of us, of course, will appreciate that truth. But what comes to be difficult is for a Christian to fall into this habitual life of sin. You forfeit your salvation to do that. In answer to our question, then we note this. It appears we have a New Testament example of an individual to whom this would directly apply. It's in the 8th chapter of Acts. <clears throat> there, the gentleman's name was Simon. If I may, in fact, paint a bit of picture in light of the conversion scene of that chapter, Philip had come down to the area of Samaria. He preached the nature of Jesus Christ. He did so with strength and with power. And those people there, according to verse number 12, they obeyed the gospel, at least many of them did, both men and women. 
Now you'll notice as they did that, among the group in Samaria that obeyed the gospel was a man named Simon. You and I typically know him as Simon the sorcerer. The time had been true in his life. He had bewitched people with sorcery. Now, he perhaps had done that with magic. Maybe he had done that in some other sleight of hand. But the fact is, people thought that he was of powerful nature more so than he was. He had bewitched them. The time came after he obeyed the gospel. Peter and John came from Jerusalem. And they laid their hands as apostles on the brethren in Samaria. And in so doing, conferred the power of the Holy Spirit. Simon saw them do this, and he wanted to be able to do it. And he offered them money. I'd like to buy the capability so that I can lay my hands on others and impart the Holy Spirit. We all remember how Peter replied. Peter said, you're in sin asking to do this. This can't be bought with money. In fact, Peter rather notably told him in verses 20 and following of Acts chapter 8, you're in the bond of iniquity and the gall of bitterness. You need to repent of this. Now here was a man who had been overwhelmed in a sin. He formerly had been given to sorcery and now he lapsed back into it when he saw this laying on of hands. We might now ask this question, did he need to be rebaptized? The text says no. In fact, you and I remember what Peter told him was this. Repent and pray God that this would be forgiven you. And Simon rather quickly besought Paul, or rather besought Philip, or rather Peter, I should say, to pray to God on his behalf. And so we notice he wasn't commanded to be baptized again. And so as you and I come to answer this question, it would seem that if this person met those prerequisites for obedience to the gospel, was baptized into Christ, and then lapsed back into the sin, he wouldn't have to be rebaptized. He could merely make confession of this thing. He could, in fact, pray that his brethren would have strength for him that he might be able to overcome it, but that he would not necessarily need to be rebaptized at all. And so there's our answer to that question. What about another question for the night tonight? This one, again, I'd like to read verbatim the question that was asked. And then let's give it some consideration. The question reads like this. If a person hears the Word of God and believes, repents, confesses, and is baptized for remission of sins, but is in the Christian church, is this scriptural? If the baptism was done according to God's plan for salvation and for the right reason, can that person come into the church of Christ and worship and partake of the Lord's Supper? Again, a very good question. All of these questions, in fact, not only tonight, but in the sessions prior to this one, all of them have been fantastic questions. Let's give some attention to this one, beginning at the top of that slide. The first thing we might appreciate is... You and I understand the rightful place and the importance attached to the act of baptism. But in highlighting and even emphasizing it, may we never overlook in emphasis those prerequisites to it. And this question highlighted them, belief and repentance and confession. 
All three of them, according to the Word of God, are in fact necessary in order for an individual to scripturally be able to enter into this that, that the Bible calls baptism. You may notice, for instance, in 1 Peter 3.21, on that occasion the inspired writer put it like this, "...the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ." There it is highlighted, isn't it, that baptism is that which saves us upon those prerequisites that, of course, preceded it. In John chapter 3, verses 3, 4, and 5, Nicodemus came to Jesus by nine, and the Lord told him, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And as the Lord elaborated on that point two verses later, he rather quickly noted, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. To say all of that is to say how beautifully the Word of God highlights the need for being reborn, the need to appreciate this act in baptism and what precedes it. Now, it was noted in the question that this individual who obeyed the gospel apparently did so as a point of entrance or at least became a member of this organization known as the Christian Church. You may notice near the bottom of that slide you and I know today that the religious world is such that there are a number of religious organizations that wear various names, and that long word that you and I know that seemingly corresponds to this whole thought is denominationalism. This idea that there are lots of different organizations, each one's equally acceptable, and that they're all such that they have information helpful in leading one toward the destination of heaven. Now the problem is, of course, in the New Testament, there is nothing denominational that's known at all. The Lord promised to establish one church, Matthew 16, 18. In fact, did He not say, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? That word church is singular, meaning there's only one of them. And not only that, the adjective that precedes it, my, identifies the Lord owns it, and it too is singular in its thrust. Paul later would say in Ephesians 4, there is one body. There is one church. Now that, of course, will have a bearing on our appreciation of, of this particular question and the manner in which we might look upon it. But at the bottom, we might now note this. This modern-day denominationalism is wholly against the teaching of the New Testament. Our Savior, the night before He was crucified, He prayed in earnest that they, who's the they, all believers for all time, that they would be one, united together in the truth of God in the same way that Jesus and the Father are one. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse number 10, Paul made this statement, I beseech you therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. To say all of that would lead us to say, we would wholeheartedly commend this individual in light of the person's subscription to the gospel plan of salvation. The person believed in Jesus, apparently, believed in the nature and the character of the cleansing nature of the blood of Christ, 
this person repented of his or her sins, this individual made verbal confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and was immersed, buried in water for the remission of sins. There is one more thing, though, that we would need to ask about this. Critical issue, it would seem, here would be the matter of belief. What exactly did this individual believe? Did this person believe that all religious institutions were the same? That all were equally acceptable? And that immersion would lead you into any one of them appropriately accepted by God? If that's what the person believed, we've got a problem here. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13, we read this verse. As Paul addressed these comments of the church in Corinth, he said, For, and I'm starting in verse 12 of that chapter, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. And it's the first part of verse 13 that seems to have a rather dramatic bearing on our answer to this question. The text again says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Note this with me. That preposition into highlights a change of environment, a change of venue, if you please. And baptism adds one into the one body, but we know the one body is the church, and it's the church Christ built. And it's the church for which He shed His blood, Acts 20, 28. And it's the body that He's going to hand over to God for all eternity, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. If this individual subscribed to the plan of salvation, believing that the Christian church was an acceptable body, there's an issue here. The New Testament knows nothing about the Christian church. That phrase isn't found anywhere in all the New Testament. In fact, under the banner of Colossians 3.17, it says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. If we're supposed to honor the Lord in everything we do, and everything we say, shouldn't that include the name of the church of which we're a part? And if the New Testament says nothing about this, in fact, obviously teaches that many things the Christian church teaches are not in harmony with the New Testament. The Christian church, for instance, thinks mechanical musical instruments are fine in worship, but they're not. The Christian church thinks many things that in fact are condemned in the New Testament are acceptable. I believe we'd have to conclude in the interest of striving to maintain the closest harmony we can. Although the commendation for the person's belief, it seems what they believed concerning the church was not right. They must have thought the Christian church was the same as the church that the Lord bought, but it's not. I would submit we ought to encourage by way of study this individual to submit to baptism with the understanding that they're added to the church Jesus purchased, to the church that He built, to the one that His blood bought, and not anything that human hands have ever touched. Now these two questions so far have brought us to think about some interesting things concerning the plan of salvation. The third question, though, relates to something different.
Let's look at this one for just a, the next few moments. This question is very short. It reads like this. Is it okay for a woman to pray if a man is in the house? Now that's stated very succinctly, isn't it? Is it okay for a woman to pray if a man is in the house? This affords a good opportunity to think a little bit about a number of features that amazingly are a part of that simply worded question. And we're always thankful for questions as they help us appreciate the teaching of the Word of God. Let's begin near the top of that slide. First of all, God expects His children to pray to Him. There's no doubt about that. Aren't we told in Matthew chapter 7, in fact, that ask, seek, knock. It'll be given you. You'll find it. But did you notice the imperative nature of those words? May I submit to you, we can make a lot of applications of that principle. One of the shortest verses in all the New Testament is this, Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 As Jesus, for instance, gave words about the importance of prayer, didn't He put it like this in Matthew chapter 6? He said, Pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we, or our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, passages like those bring us back to say this. And in some ways, it's a point of critical understanding. We know that in the assemblies, there's a gentleman who leads us in prayer. But note with care how I said that. This gentleman is leading us in prayer. Every one of us who are Christians need to be praying. It's not just him praying and we listening. All of us are praying. He's merely wording those sentiments and those thoughts. But all of us need to be with mind directed to those things being said. We're all praying. That includes the women. So, first of all, may we notice this question that's asked, is it okay for a woman to pray if a man is in the house? There may well be a man in the house and it'd be all right for, of course, a woman to pray easily. Now, notice I've said nothing about audibly yet. No matter what that man's doing, lady, you can pray. You may do so, of course, with an appreciation of understanding and silence. Whether God hears your prayer doesn't depend on Him. And may I say, in light of our congregational prayers, that's gentlemen that's up here leading us. My prayer to God doesn't depend on Him. He's not my mediator and He's not yours. Who is our mediator? 1 Timothy 2.5 There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So your prayer and mine to God doesn't hinge on this gentleman. Now, we would expect him to have holy hands. And that phrase in 1 Timothy 2.8 means that his life needs to be a characteristic life of godliness. Our elders would never knowingly invite some man to lead us in prayer knowing that his life is not a wholesome with attempted direction toward a life of goodness and godliness. That would be an improper thing to do. 
But may I say, that really doesn't answer the person's question. Because let's go even further. Isn't it true that as we think about, is it okay for a woman to pray if a man is in the house? My suspicion is the person who asked it really had this in mind. Is it okay for a woman to lead in prayer with a man present? Now notice that's a little different than, than what we studied a moment ago. Again, you may pray, lady, in silence. Your prayers to God don't depend on Him. But might we now say this? Let's develop this latter thought. What about a woman leading in prayer where there's men present? For the first thing we can say is this. In the public assemblies, that would be wrong. In the public assemblies, that would be wrong. We know that because of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Would you turn with me to that chapter as we look at some of the features developed on that occasion? We'll not read the fullness of that chapter, but may I begin in verse number 11? Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Now you'll notice a couple of things were mentioned. First, it was forbidden to women to teach, and so a woman will not be able to deliver a sermon to a mixed audience, at least in the church of Christ. And furthermore, she'll not be able to teach over a mixed Bible study class. That would not be in harmony with this passage. But you'll notice the verse said something else usurp authority over the man. Now notice that's seemingly different than teaching. And so it would not be proper for a woman to take any role in which she possesses an authority over the man in the act of public worship to God. So a woman is not going to be able to, 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 to lead the public prayer, to preach, to lead in singing. And it's not because that men have chosen to be chauvinists. It's because of verses like this one. It is the plan and will of God that it be so. It is the point, though, all of that leads us to this question, which is the next slide. It's true that we have no Bible examples of a woman leading over men in prayer. Now, as you and I think about applying this to private devotions, admittedly we reach a bit of challenge. The passage we just studied in 1 Timothy 2 appears to relate to the public assemblies, like our worship services and our Bible study periods. But the question that was asked, you may notice, read it like this. Is it okay for a woman to pray if a man is in the house? I take it the person was referring to a regular place of residence, not the church building. Now what if you're at home? Now, these passages that govern the public assembly, we would have to ask, we would not automatically be able to pick them up and apply them. There are lots of things that you and I may do in the privacy of our home that would not be appropriate in worship. And so this slide asks us to consider this. From the context, it seems as if it would be a stretch to apply these verses to the private devotions in the house, in one's own place of residence. Beyond that, I would submit that you or I would never wish to make a law where God has not made one. 
we're not in the business of legislating for Him. He's greater than we are, and He has given us what He wants us to know. And so the bottom of the slide, I would take it that it would be a bit of a stretch or at least a challenge to take these verses and automatically always apply them in those cases. And lastly, I think we could say this. In light of what is taught here in 1 Corinthians 14, it seems as if it would be the safer thing for the man to lead that prayer, to take the lead, the spiritual lead in his family. After all, God has given that to him. The wife is supposed to be submissive to him. The children are submissive to him. He ought to take the lead in leading those prayers. But to always and in every way affirm it would be wrong for the woman to do so. I don't know that we can go that far. I think we should approach it in the safer consideration, the understanding that, gentlemen, let's be the ones to lead our families in the way they ought to go and be the ones to word those prayers. Now, it wouldn't be at all wrong to invite your daughters or your wife to share with you the things on their heart so that you could incorporate it and include it in the prayers. As we close that particular question... It brings us to question four for the night. Again, with your Bible in hand, turn back to Genesis with me. The question is worded like this. God confounded human languages at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. If distinct human languages began at that time, what are the references to the division of mankind after tongues in chapter 10? Now turn back to the book of Genesis and let's try to use these verses in the Bible to at least specifically highlight what it is that's being noted. In Genesis chapter 10, for example, verse number 5 reads like this, "...by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families, in their nations." And then later in the chapter, verse number 20, These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. And the idea is that this chapter, Genesis chapter 10, makes note of the fact that there was a division among the human family according to tongues, according to families. But yet, in chapter 11, verse 1, it reads like this, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. So what did it mean in chapter 10 when it says that there were divisions after tongues, and that word's plural, but in chapter 11 it begins by saying there was only one language. How can this be? I hope we all can see the idea behind the question. Is this some sort of contradiction or is there some message that we to this point have failed to appreciate? Well, you'll notice, first of all, let's highlight what took place at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar." And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. 
And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth." That's Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Several times in that paragraph of reading, there was an observation the individuals there were such that there was but one language. Verse 1 had said it, verse 6 says it, and then verse number 9 basically affirms it again. At this point, we can conclude at the scene, at the event, touching the Tower of Babel, the human family enjoyed the consistency and the unity of one language. But that begs the question back in chapter 10, what did it mean when it said then that there was division after these tongues? Well, let's go back to chapter 10. What is the idea behind Genesis chapter 10? I think it'd be reasonable for me to say chapter 10 is easy to overlook. It's a chapter that, in fact, in many ways, as you perhaps read through Genesis or even in other parts of the Bible, referring back to this chapter may be a rare thing. Maybe that's not wise on our part. Because consider this with me. Remember, back in Genesis 6 through 9, there had been information about the flood. That flood of Noah's day, all human creatures died except eight. Noah and his family now, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Genesis chapter 10 gives us the information how those three sons repopulated the various places geographically of this place we call earth. And I tried to summarize that like this. Genesis chapter 10 thus is in many ways a summary chapter, meaning that this is not chronological. That is to say, all that is written in chapter 10 was not completed by the time we arrive at chapter 11. Rather, chapter 10 was written by Moses as a general description of how that these particular sons of Noah would repopulate the various places of earth as the centuries would roll on by. We know that because of what you notice at the bottom. Chapter 10... Verses 6 through 20, it seems to me, provides us a good bit of evidence. I'll not read all of verses 6 through 20, but let me at least start in verse 6 so that we have the idea of what's being described. And the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan. And then the sons of Cush were Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabtika, and the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. And by now we have the idea this is listing the sons of Ham as the centuries would roll by. But did you notice this? Look at verse 19. Remember, same paragraph. These are still the descendants of Ham, but look at what's described. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, and as thou comest to Gerar and to Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah 
and Adma and Zeboam, even unto Lasa. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries and in their nations. And in the verses, verses 15 and following, that same descendancy is described with peoples like this. Jebusite, Amorite, Girgashite, Hivite, Archite, Sinite, Arvidite, Zimmerite, Hamathite, and Canaanite. Now notice, those peoples we're not going to read about in the Old Testament until later we get near the time when the children of Israel enter into the land of Canaan. So those peoples, at least in strength, didn't develop for hundreds of years after this. But what this tells us is all of them descended from Ham. They didn't come from Shem and they didn't come from Japheth. They came from Ham. As a side note, the other places of appreciation lead us to maybe think about this. You and I are descended from Japheth. Japheth's peoples traveled more northward and somewhat westward, and all of the European peoples came out of Japheth. And most of us, I suppose, have ancestors that came across the Atlantic Ocean, maybe on the Mayflower, maybe on some of those other explorer ships of a few hundred years ago. But we came out of Japheth, not Shem and not Ham. This chapter highlights then, doesn't it, how that these peoples, these descendants of those sons of Noah, populated the various parts of earth in the various places that they did so. And so there's no contradiction between chapter 10 and 11. There was one language, indeed at the time. God confounded it at Babel. And then over the centuries that followed, there was development of all these peoples in various places geographically around the planet. Those four questions consume what time we have tonight. Let's close our lesson then by simply highlighting that it's our desire as we use the Word of God and make application of these things to help us live in a way that would please the great God of heaven. Maybe as any one of us analyzes our life tonight, if you find something amiss, please, please don't procrastinate, don't delay. Isn't it true that there was a eunuch in Acts chapter 8 who, upon hearing the gospel, he stopped the preacher in mid-sermon. He was so necessarily wishing to obey the gospel, he wanted to do it then. We have a convenient time here in just a moment. We're going to stand and sing this song of encouragement. Maybe something that's been said in these songs or the prayer tonight or something we've read from the Bible has encouraged someone in this audience to make a public response to the invitation of the gospel. If we could help you do that, we'd be delighted to do it. Believe with all of your heart, Jesus indeed is the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized for the remission of sins into the wonderful church which Jesus established. If you've done that, and you have lived for a while in faithfulness, but that can't be said tonight... Maybe you're wrestling with some sin. If you'd like to just come and ask for prayers of strength from this congregation, we'd be honored to direct prayers of strength to God on your behalf. If any of these things will be the need of your heart and life tonight, don't delay. Why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?